Welcome to the Bonhoeffer Podcast, a podcast about the life, theology, and practice of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm your host, Corey Tuttle. And my guest today is Dr. Stephen Plant. Dr. Plant is the Dean and Runcie Fellow at Trinity Hall at the University of Cambridge, where he lectures on Christian theology and ethics in the Faculty of Divinity. He's also the author of several books on Bonhoeffer, including Taking Stock of Bonhoeffer and the editor of Bonhoeffer's Letters to London. Dr. Plant, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. So uh, The wonders of modern technology that we can do this. Yeah, yeah. This, this has been great. Um, just the amount of Bonhoeffer scholars who are just willing to have conversations about Bonhoeffer scholars with students from across the world is um, surprising um, <laughs> and exciting. So, so this, is, this is great. Um, what I was hoping that we could do is a little bit of get-to-know-you kind of questions so that the, the listeners could be more familiar with their background, and then we could jump into some of your work. Um, so how did you discover Bonhoeffer? Well, I did. I studied theology from the age of eighteen, um, and I was a student at the University of Birmingham. And two of my teachers there were interested in Bonhoeffer. I guess that's the short story. But it, um, the the reason I think that Bonhoeffer made a particular kind of, or I made a particular link to his thought, was that I had a pretty um, kind of conservative evangelical upbringing. So my my parents um, are Christians of a sort of fairly conservative kind. And I felt I wanted, therefore, when I went to university, um, something that was intellectually challenging, but something that remained firmly rooted in uh, in the Bible in, and in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. I found, I found that when I began to read Bonhoeffer, there was some, some sort of instinctive connection with him. We were sort of, it felt like we were on a similar wavelength. Um, but the kind of key moment for me when I was writing my, an essay on his letters and papers from prison, and um, this was in my second year, and up to that point I'd, I'd enjoyed my studies. they had been, um, you know, interesting enough, but nothing had really, had not taken off. And uh, I felt like I was still somehow planted on the runway. The engines were running, but I was kind of still waiting to take off. And I remember having to prepare this essay, and it was in, I suppose, about November, um, uh, it was one November, and I was going to travel to India to see a friend of mine who was out working in um, Pakistan. Uh, and it was the first time I'd ever traveled abroad, so I needed jabs, you know, I- injections. Mm-hmm. So I was in the tropical disease unit at Birmingham City Hospital, uh, waiting for these jabs, and I missed my appointment because I was reading the letters and papers from prison. <laughs> And I was completely gripped. I'd not read anything quite like it before where you had theology interspersed with this extraordinary story of somebody who was under arrest and waiting for trial and facing death and and yet thinking theologically. And something about that interweaving of context made, I suppose, made theology come alive. And I think since then, I, I, you might say I date to sort of think of it as a sort of theological birth. Hmm. It was, that, then the wheels left the runway and I was in the air. Wow. What what led you initially to study theology when when you decided to go to Birmingham? Well, yeah, so in in the UK you can do theology as a straightforward degree rather than a postgraduate degree. So I did I just at 18 you study history or you study maths or you study mm-hmm. natural sciences or whatever and I just decided to study theology. Um I think I knew even at that point I was going to um become a an ordained pastor an ordained minister so I 
Um, but but I'm, perhaps I should have done something else instead. <laughs> Most of my colleagues uh, who are now ministers did first degrees and something else, and perhaps they got a bit more, sure. uh, a bit more foundation. But for me, I, I, it was what I wanted to do. And anyway, theology degrees um, plays a bit differently in the UK to the US because you have departments here which are departments of theology and of religious studies. They tend these disciplines tend to be dealt with separately in the US, but in the UK. You have to, uh, these disciplines are done together in the same courses. So it was a pretty broad course with historical study, biblical study, but also mm. theology and some philosophy of religion and so on. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in your book, Taking Stock of Bonhoeffer, it's a collection of essays. The final essay is on Bonhoeffer's reception in Britain. You, you kind of lay out different stages of Bonhoeffer's reception in Britain. I was wondering when you had that experience and you're getting your jabs and you're reading uh, letters and papers, what is the climate of Bonhoeffer studies like then? And then how has it changed? Hardly anybody was reading him. So when I became a PhD student, um, which was in 1986, 1987, um, not long thereafter, my um, supervisor, my doctoral supervisor, encouraged me to go to one of the international Bonhoeffer conferences that happen every four years, and it was taking place in Amsterdam. It was all very exciting, so I got funding, and off I went. And I was one of only two, at the, as I discovered at the time, one of only two people working on Bonhoeffer at PhD level in the whole of the UK. Wow. Um, so there was somebody else doing an MA, but two of us doing PhDs. The other person was German and working at uh, St Andrews. Um, uh, an interesting man himself, by the way, called Jörg Rudesch, who suddenly died in the middle of his studies, but was a, a really promising, brilliant scholar mm. of Bonhoeffer. Um, so yes, hardly anybody reading Bonhoeffer at that point in time. It was as if he'd been forgotten. Um, but, you know, the, the state of play for theology in Britain is in a different place anyway. It, all, it always has been hard to contrast. It's contrasted with America, where um, in, the, in, in the second half of the, of the 20th century, English-speaking theology was really very lively and very healthy. By comparison, there was a much smaller group of people working in Britain uh, on theological issues. Scotland's perhaps a bit different. They have a an impressive tradition of um, producing, um, you know, international quality systematic theologians or doctrinal theologians. But the English have tended to focus on biblical studies or patristics. And how does how has that changed now, as far as Bonhoeffer well, studies in in Britain? It's a question. I mean, now a lot of people do PhDs. It's, it's possible too many. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of, uh, you know, when I when I did my PhD, the field was so underpopulated um, that you could take a, a pretty broad subject and, and not tread, tread on the toes of anybody else who'd worked in that area. Um, as time has gone on, the projects have had to become more and more narrowly focused the Bonhoeffer projects because um, you know, the, the, there are more and more PhDs, more and more serious bits of scholarship occupying the space of Bonhoeffer scholarship. So, you know, when I did my PhD, hardly anybody, for instance, had written about, say, creation and fall. There were there were whole books that almost nobody had written about hmm. um, in the 80s. And that's at least in the English in the English language a bit bit busier in in Germany. But yeah, yeah. so I'd say now and now I have I have you know approaches two, three, four a year people wanting to do Bonhoeffer PhDs. It's a, and there's a big centre of gravity in Scotland, in Aberdeen, with colleagues in Aberdeen um, specialising in Bonhoeffer studies, people like Phil Ziegler, haven't you spoken to? Um, 
uh, Tom Greggs. So there are lots of people writing on Bonhoeffer in Scotland. And, um, yeah, it's a much busier field than it was. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific questions about Bonhoeffer that you're interested in seeing answered? I I guess I I didn't plan this question, but I just you say everything's being more and more narrowly focused. I'm wondering if there's anything on your mind. It's not any criticism of the projects that are being produced. I'm still reading lots of interesting work. I've got, I, I, I shouldn't say who they are because the, the vibes are yet to come, but I'm reading a PhD at the moment, which is very interesting. Um, so, yes, there are lots of good projects out there. Um, I guess, the, I mean, what can I say? There's a lot more. On, actually, one, one thing that has been noticeable is that there have been more projects related to things like the sacraments and ecclesiology. So, uh, perhaps when I worked on Bonhoeffer, the ethics was being translated and then there was a little flourishing of stuff based on the ethics. Um, the timing of projects to some extent has been related to the publication stream of the English translation of the Bonhoeffer studies. As they've come out, people are focused on the bits that were coming out. Um, but yeah, I would say, I would say theology's taken, it's a, it's a, a generalization, so there will be exceptions, but theology has taken a, a more ecclesial turn. So, uh, you're more likely now than you were 15 or 20 years ago, ago to see projects on, say, Bonhoeffer and prayer, or Bonhoeffer and confession, or Bonhoeffer and the sacraments, things that are strictly speaking ecclesial. Um, most of the projects emerging in the 90s, early 90s, say, tended to be on um, philosophical topics, things like act and being, and so on. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you about, you had the opportunity to to edit the letters to London, um, was which was just a fascinating read to kind of hear the backstory. So hopefully we can we can jump into that. So can you sort of describe who wrote the letters to London? Uh, well, Bonhoeffer, who's he interacting with? Um, and then maybe we can jump into the story of how you got to to meet. Well, look, Corey, marks out, 10 marks out of 10 for getting it letters to London, because my publishers wanted to call it letters from London until I pointed out that he was in Berlin, he was in Germany for most of those, so they couldn't call it that. Um, so yeah, the, the story went something like this. So um, in 2010, um, I got a phone call from a former colleague who had been speaking with um, a woman called Tony Burroughs Cromwell, and she had found some letters that had been written to her father-in-law while they were refurbishing his house. He was um, becoming a bit less mobile and they, they needed to um, rebuild their house so that they could live together with with the older gen- older generation, younger generation, living all living together in the same house. And they'd found these letters basically while they were going through book, his book collection to see which books they could shed and which they needed to keep them. He put them inside the book covers basically to keep them safe, I suppose, but forgotten about them. Um, and the letters turned out to be a cache of letters uh, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer to Ernst Cromwell, or in one case to the Cromwell family, to Cromwell's mum and dad as well as to him. Um, and the story uh, was that the Cromwell family had come to Britain in the 19, late or mid 1930s. Um, Ernst's father was uh, a lawyer. Uh, but the son of Jewish parents, and though not himself a practicing Jew, uh, he was uh, on the ball and aware that the uh, advent of the probable advent of a Nazi state made it extremely sensible to leave Germany. So he took his family 
um, to London and uh, settled them there. Uh, and eventually his mother joined him. She, she had by her way her own story. His mother getting out would prove very tricky. And it may be that Bartha was involved in helping her leave the country. It's, in fact, it seems to me quite likely that he was. Mm. Um, and this involved... Uh, and, and his father and his father also helped a number of people, um, probably through links through Bonhoeffer and others. Perhaps Julius Riga, who was a colleague of Bonhoeffer's at the German church in in in, um, in Aldgate in London, to help a number of people leave the country. Now, initially, when he arrived in London, Ernst's father um, uh, couldn't practice law; he had to retrain. So he worked in publishing for a little while, and then eventually retrained as a lawyer. So Ernst grew up in England, um, and then uh, in 1939, when the war broke out, um, foreign nationals who uh, had been born and brought up in um, what were now enemy countries were interned, unless they were uh, over the age, I think it was 55 or 60, but if they were under the age of 55 or something, they were all interned. Um, And that's exactly what happened to the Cromwell family. So even though this family had far more reason than most British people did to uh, be anti-Nazi, uh, they were all lumped together as a group of people who were suspicious with Italian nationals and others mm. and uh, interned. Now, to get out of internment, um, a British person could um, join the army, which is what happened to Cromwell. He joined the British army. He joined the Pioneer Corps, which meant that he was involved, for instance, in burying the dead after D-Day, and then joined, as soon as he arrived in France, he was able to transfer to intelligence because he was bilingual by then, of course, in German and English, and worked in intelligence, including uh, on the Nuremberg trials. So he had a very interesting career, and then subsequently was a lawyer. But while he was in London as a boy, his mother wanted him to be confirmed. Um, So she contacted uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, possibly, as I say, through these links with the with incoming refugees through common links, and asked Bonhoeff to prepare Ernst for uh, confirmation, which he did, and bon- and Cromwell was confirmed. Ernst Cromwell was confirmed um, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they they took a, a bit of a walking trip, went on a bit of a holiday later together to Scotland, um, and then about that time Bonhoeffer then moved back to Germany where he was. Um, appointed a director of one of the five illegal seminaries of the Confessing Church. And it's main, the letters mainly come either from the period when he's preparing to go on this little holiday trip with Ernst or subsequently from Germany. He sends him letters on the anniversary of the confirmation, for example, or on his birthday. They tend to be on anniversaries of that kind. Hmm. Wow. And uh, the the holiday that he takes, um, there's a picture of it that is the cover of the book, um, and it is one of a kind. It shows that uh, Dietrich did did not he did not care where he was. He was nicely dressed. It's not Gore-Tex, is it? <laughs> He's on top of a mountain. It's not breathable fabric. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, yeah, you can't see it now. So I mean, it doesn't make great podcast listing but you should look up um, letters to london you'll see you'll see the picture bonhoeffer is on top of a mountain dressed like uh like he's going to church probably um top hat and he's got a he's got a fedora on and all and a long coat um it's fantastic um but we 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 should say with the letters there are there's the 
the book um, has quite a few pictures in it um, mm-hmm. from our family, uh, and, and and some of the letters also that are in are in sort of typescript. But I mean, I think the reason the reason I really enjoyed working on the book was as much for Ernst's story as it was for Boniface. You know, you got of course we learned about Boniface. We learned about Boniface as a decent pastor. He's, he's good at relating to this young man. He stands alongside him. He sees things from his point of view. It's an easygoing, informal relationship, but also one in which Boniface acts as a mentor and a teacher. And some of the book is about that mentoring, teaching role. You know, we know we know the Boniface was a pastor, but we don't really see much of his pastoral work mm-hmm. um, from from the printed texts. And this, these letters just give us a little tiny glimpse. Nothing earth-shattering. Nothing. Um, you know, no no huge original discoveries. But it's 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 just a, a new little glimpse of, of Bonhoeffer in this pastoral relationship. And I think he comes out of it rather well. He comes out of it as a person who goes the extra mile uh, in pastoral relationships. He uh, and as I say, you know, some years later he's still writing to the boy. Mm to mark the anniversary of the confirmation. So it's even after he's no longer pastor in, in London, he's still continuing to make contact and try off, try and offer a bit of guidance here and a bit of support there. So you've got these two stories, really. You've got Ernst's story, which I think is interesting in itself, but you've also got... Um, but yeah, I should also... You, you were asking about how I came across the letters, and there's another story I wanted to tell about that, if I may. Yes, of course. When I... When I so it, I was telling you how... Um, t- uh, Tony Burroughs Cromwell contacted a friend of mine and they, they sh- he then phoned to say they found these letters and then I met with the family we met in a hotel in Essex they lived in a they live in Essex in the southeast of England so I drove down one one afternoon um, and I was meeting about five or six o'clock in this in this hotel lobby for coffee and they had a brown file with them an A4 sized file and, and they put it down on the table and we ordered coffee and we started talking politely and, and trying to sort of build a relationship. They, they were a little suspicious of me. And all I could think of was that I wanted to look inside the file. <laughs> I knew the file contained the letters. And I just I just wanted to, I mean, I felt like saying, can we have this conversation about, can we all, can we stop talking and yeah. just let me read the letters? <laughs> but I couldn't say that. So um, they, they were being pro- very properly and very sensibly. They wanted to make sure that if I was going to help them published the letters I was going to present it in a way they felt was appropriate um, and, and they had their own uh, sense of how they how they want to approach, approach the project so then uh, eventually um, we then went back to their home and and then I did did see the letters and I, I they gave me copies and I took them to the car and and even before I, I, I drove a street away and then stopped the car and opened opened the file. I, I couldn't wait um, because it's not every day as a scholar you find new material. I mean, I, yeah. I've done it yeah. since, but I'd only done it once before. In the case of Bonhoeffer, I'd found a, a postcard from Bonhoeffer uh, in an archive that nobody knew about. So I'd, I'd found hardly anything original by Bonhoeffer. So I, suddenly I've got a cache of 12 letters or something in my hand. So I... In the car, I then thought, I've got to phone the only person I know who will be as interested as I am in this, which was Clifford Green, oh, yeah. who, knew, who was you know, one of my main Bonhoeffer contacts. So I don't know what time of day it was in the States, um, but I phoned Clifford Green, 
and told him where I was and what oh, wow. I was doing. I was so excited. Oh. I could see it once. I could see the handwriting. I knew the handwriting. I knew this was genuine material. So that was really exciting. And then eventually um, I got back in touch and said, so I then went to see Ernst. And um, he was by then in his early 90s. This was in 2011, I think, went to see him, January 2011. And I then interviewed him uh, about about the letters and his friendship with Bonhoeffer. Um, and and I, it was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation. Um, and in fact, it's in the book, as you as you saw. Right. It's, there's a transcript of it in the book. Um, and then Tony and I, his daughter-in-law and I, then proceeded um, to edit the book. And we did one more thing, which was a, which was a really enjoyable experience. We had a two-day conference on the letters. So I, I got a bit of funding, um, and I brought scholars over from Germany and from America, including Clifford Green, um, and also, um, importantly, um, we had the editor of the London volume of the Bonhoeffer works, um, Cross, and he. So we had a, a group of scholars, Ralph Fustenberg from from Flensburg and others, uh, and we read the letters carefully over two days, along with my PhD students, my research students, but also Tony Burroughs and Tony's granddaughter. In other words, Ernst's. Sorry, Tony's daughter. Uh, stepdaughter who was also Ernst's granddaughter so we have we had family representation there as well and we read the letters together and tried to unpick what was happening in them what their context was uh, and that was a really interesting two days and, and a great way actually to work up the footnotes because all the footnotes that we then produced which also included with when the letters came out in the um, scholarly edition of Bonhoeffer's works as they've done since and um, the, the footnotes were the ones essentially we worked on together as a little group. So it was a really nice way to handle letters, a kind of collegial way to handle the whole process of editing them. I thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing. Wow. <laughs> what a fascinating story. Yeah, that was one of the, the most exciting parts of reading it is you, you kind of explain in the beginning of the book how these letters were discovered. And it I don't know. It seems like a movie, you know, something that, oh, just the back corner of an attic, then yeah. you kind of strike gold. And, and to hear that all the care that went into publishing these and making sure the story was right. What uh, what volume of the Bonhoeffer works are these letters in? They went, they went into two volumes because they straddled two time periods. So some of them belong in the London volume, mm-hmm. which Keith Clements edited, and some in the volume... That followed it, which is I don't know what it's what volume. I can't remember the volume numbers uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, same. Uh, <laughs> I'm, on, so, I'm on volume eleven right now. Okay, uh, right. I can't remember the volume numbers um, off the top of my head. I should look that up before I spoke to you, shouldn't I? Um, no, no, anyway, no worries. The, just the volume. The volume is after the London volume. Gotcha. gotcha. Fantastic. If I keep, I'll look at. I'll, keep, I'll come back to me. Yeah. Got it. Oh, here we go. So uh, I've got it in front of me. So it was volume. 12, uh, no, volume 13 and volume 14 eventually went into, yeah. Great. Well, I'm on volume 11 right now, so I should probably start that next volume. I mean, I, I have read the letters in, in this book, but it'll be nice, uh, a nice refresher. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit about um, his uh, pastoral work and how we've learned a little bit more about Bonhoeffer. Is there anything else that we've gained insight in, about insight about Bonhoeffer, not just from the letters, but from your your conversation, from your interview with uh, Ernst Cromwell, have you have we learned anything new besides these sort of uh, pastoral care? 
you know, nothing, nothing mind-bogglingly new. So I don't, I don't think there are any tremendous surprises. And you know, some of the detail, some of the things you find out don't matter very much. So we, we, it had always been assumed in Eberhard Baker's biography that because of the geographical locations of two places he visits, you, you know that Bonhoeffer. I'm sure you know that Bonhoeffer, in preparation for becoming director of a seminary, wanted to visit a few. Uh, religious communities uh, in England, mm-hmm. and a couple of these were Anglican places, Anglic- centres of Anglican worship and study, where people trained for for ministry, trained for the priesthood, but were also living together in religious community. And um, we thought that he went in one particular sequence, and in fact, from the letters we learned, he went in the, the reverse order. So, and in, in itself, a fact like that is neither here nor there. Um, but. You know, he's, he writes about silence, for example, in in Murfield, which is the first place he'd been in a community where they practiced silence, which he then implements hmm. in Finkenwalde. Um, and it's clear he's not very good at it. So he, he he's making use of the silence. He's making use of the silence to write to Ernst Cromwell. He says, you know, that in this period of silence, I'll take the opportunity to write to you. <laughs> it's not, which is not. Um, as the community intended, it's silence. If you if you use it to do your correspondence, <laughs> um, so he in some ways you can see him preparing for Finkenwalder. I think the thing that the the thing about the letters which most struck me and still continues to strike me most is the extent to which his experiences in London. He was already thinking ahead to a new phase of the church struggle. Mm. Bonhoeffer is crystal clear. As early as 33, 34, 35, certainly by 34, he's crystal clear that the church struggle in, in the form that the confessing church is undertaking it um, won't deflect Nazism from the path it was determined to take. And Bonhoeffer understood that in order to resist Nazism, um, it was going to be necessary for Christians to stand in the place of the victims. And he, he, the phrase he uses, which is a quotation from um, the letter to the Hebrews, is to the point of shedding blood. It, it, he means that he will, the Christians will need to shed, have their blood shed as hmm. they stand with the needs, with the needs of the victims. Um, and I think his, his letters to Cromwell, Ernst Cromwell, begin to reflect that. He just hints in one or two places that the kind of discipleship that people of his generation, certainly in Germany, are going to have to uh, live, is one which will be which will be costly, and I I, I think that capacity to see the shape of the immediate future is 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 the thing I remember most in the letters. Hmm. Yeah, that was that really stood out for me as well. I'm in volume eleven right now, and you can see it coming. Um, he's he's starting to to preach and write, and it's all about the future of the church in the immediate future, um, and and how we prep for what is about to happen. So he his foresight is remarkable. I wanted to ask you. I guess you mentioned earlier that you came across some other original. You said the postcard from. For Bonhoeffer, it was, yeah. and then you came across these letters. Um, I also, not... the, the only other thing I came across in Bonhoeffer terms was a colleague of mine who was the daughter of Bonhoeffer's friend, Franz Hildebrandt. Um, when she was downsizing her mother's home, uh, Franz Hildebrandt had died some years earlier, 
when her mother was moving into institutional care, um, Esther Shreve asked me to uh, look through some books, and there were some original copies. Um, in fact, the copy of uh, Sanctorum Communio and of Act and Being, both inscribed to Franz Hildebrandt with an inscription. The second of those two, Acton being the inscription, is mentioned in Baker's biography. So it was nice to find the books. And then, in fact, Baker had slightly misremembered one of these. So that was the only other really thing thing I found with Bonhoeffer. Um, I found I, I'm working on a maybe come to wet but towards the end. But I'm working on a biography of Bart at the moment, and there's a, there's a lot. There's quite a bit more material I've turfed up in really? that project, but, but not related to Bonhoeffer. That, that's really exciting. My my uh, thesis advisor is uh, Dr. Adam Nieder, and he's a, a Bart scholar. And when I told him that I was uh, going to interview you, without like any other lead in, he just said he's working on a Bart biography. So he, <laughs> I know that he's looking forward to it. So I'm, I'm sure everyone else is too. That news is leaked to that extent. Well, yeah, very very exciting. Um, yeah, I, I suppose we'll we'll have to wait for the biography to see the the new original things that you found. I'm sure we're looking forward to it. Are there any other projects that you are currently working on, or is it just the the, the Bart biography? I also work on on um, on international development. So I've got various bits of writing connected with international development. So I'm and I'm teaching a course this for the first time this autumn in uh, in Cambridge on uh, called just called Charity, which is about the the, the um, church's engagement with um, with need with poverty. Mm-hmm. So looking at that, both in the way that Christians have thought about love, beginning with the New Testament, but looking at Augustine, Aquinas, and the Middle Ages practices in the Middle Ages, charitable practices in the Middle Ages, and then Luther and the rather dramatic revolution that took place and the transfer of institutions um, su- supporting those in need to secular agencies from the church. So that, that that's a, a project I'm working on, and that, that will be written up too. So there's two or three things happening. Hmm. Um, but the, it's interesting... All, what they've all got in common somewhere along the line is a connection between theology and ethics or theology and politics. And if I reflect on almost everything I've written, I, I don't think I've written anything which wasn't somehow interested in the, the way that theology um, is connected to the lived experience of Christians and others. Hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, that definitely <laughs> makes sense. And uh, it makes sense why Bonhoeffer rings so true for, <laughs> for you as you read it. Yeah, exactly, and and why you know the other book you mentioned in your introduction was was taking stock of Bonhoeffer. That the subtitle of that is studies in biblical interpretation and ethics, and I I keep oscillating between issues around reading the Bible, but then also how this is played out in. And I've I've done that pretty much since I started. So my PhD, which I eventually did on Bonhoeffer, actually was on uses of the Bible and ethics. Mm. Um, so I looked at the way in which the Bible was employed. So I, I keep. I can't quite make up my mind about whether I want to think about reading the Bible, whether I want to think about ethics. I always keep trying to connect the two one way or another. <laughs> and maybe that's Bart's interesting too. You know, Bart too is somebody who is interested in the Bible, but interested in the Bible and the way it's read in contexts, the church and politics and so on. Mm-hmm. That's great. I'm looking forward to reading it. I'm sure I will read it and I'm sure many others will as well. Um, we always end every episode with uh, with a little game of Desert Island. Um, so the concept right. is you're on a desert island. You okay. are given uh, one book by Bonhoeffer and one book about Bonhoeffer, a secondary source. It could be about his life, a biography, or a theological book. Um, you know, it's, this, is a tough, this is a tough call, don't you? You can't have <laughs> yep. these things. 
<laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's it's re- really just a fun way to get book recommendations. Um, right. w- what two would you go with? Okay, well, if it was a Bonhoeffer book, I'd be torn between two books. And I'd be torn between the letters and papers, which I said were my sort of first... Um, my first memory of really being engaged with the theological text was reading the lessons and papers for prison or the ethics. I think I, if I was on it, I think that ethics is Bonhoeffer's most important book, even though it's a set of fragments. I think it's his most important book, mm. but I think today I will go with letters and papers from prison. Ask me tomorrow. I'll probably choose the ethics. <laughs> and then a second book that I would take. Well, that's a really good question. It would have to be Baker's biography. Really? Part Baker's biography of Bonhoeffer. Um, you know, as I say, I'm writing a biography at the moment, and that's making me aware of just how much, just how difficult it is really? uh, to condense a life into um, the covers of a book. And I think Baker's biography is terrific, just terrific. I mean, it's perhaps a little bit more detailed than most people would have the patience to, to work through. But I, I, you know, if you want to try and figure out what, how theology functions, what, what its value is to humanity and to the church and to Christians, but not just to Christians, to say what, what, the, what theology does, well, that biography by Baker tells you. It's a, it's a lived, ex, lived description of how theology matters. Hmm. Wow. Well, with that kind of uh, description of it, I'm going to, I will buy that today. <laughs> I haven't read it yet. I've read other uh, biographies, um, but I mean, there, there are other pacier biographies, perhaps. So if you, I, what ones you've read, but Schlingenzeepen, for instance, is very, very good. But that's um, what I've heard as well. I've read Strange Glory as well by Charles Marsh. Yeah, which is good too. I endorse that, I, my back cover of that. They're all very good. They're all good books. <laughs> I like, and in this way, I, I shall make myself very unpopular with my with, with some people, but I, I also think the Taxus reads very well. Oh, it definitely reads very well. Yeah, I mean, that's the, how I discovered Bonhoeffer was. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, there's a, there's a tribute. <laughs> anyway, but but, um, but Baker Baker is remarkable. Well, that's great. and it's a bromance as well. It's you know the kind of it's a it's got that personal connection that none of the others can have. And I knew Baker. Um, so when I was doing my PhD, um, I, I met him at a couple of conferences, and I so, and he was really kind to me and and. You know, if I wrote to him, he would write back, and so I have a number of notes from him. But also, when I went to work on the manuscripts of the, of, of the ethics, initially they were held in, in Baker's house. He had a house just outside Bonn. So if you wanted to go and see the manuscripts, you'd have to sit in Baker's study, and that meant you had lunch with them afterwards. So uh, I went for a few days and worked on these manuscripts and had lunch with them every day. And they were just, he and Renata, who's just died, were really kind. So it would have to be the Baker Bible. <laughs> What a story. Yeah, it sounds like uh, your your ability to interact with all of these um, historical figures in Bonhoeffer's life just, you, you, I mean, you just seem like you have so many great stories. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine some uh, sitting in uh, Baker's study and, and studying the manuscripts of ethics. That's, wow. And you'd sit, you'd sit on furniture that, of course, belonged to the Bonhoeffer family because Renata inherited quite a bit of it. So she would say, oh, that, that was in, that was in my grandparents' house or whatever. So these things were Bonhoeffer would have sat on as well some of them wow well thank you so much for your stories um for your uh for editing these and and you know putting out taking stock of bonhoeffer Uh, you've done us all a great service through all all of this yeah is there we usually also wrap up with 
if anyone has any follow-up questions for you, is there a way to, to contact you about uh, letters to London, anything like that? Any questions? Yeah, people can always email. Okay, perfect. I'm easy enough to find. Yeah, yeah, you just just Google. Um, well, perfect. Well, yeah, that will uh, that will wrap us up. Thank you so much just for taking the time to do this, and it's been great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Bonhoeffer Podcast, and thank you to Dr. Plant for coming on. The books we discussed today were entitled Letters to London and Taking Stock of Bonhoeffer, both of which can be found wherever books are sold. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app to help others find the show. We should be back in a few weeks with another episode that I'm really looking forward to, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Until then, as always, thanks for listening.